I'll give a wave like this just to let you know that that joke is over. Okay. I misbehave on stage, but I'm better than when I wasn't sober. Okay, so um, I've sobered up. There's still some blackouts. And, um, I worked in Hyman's and survived tornadoes and trailers, but that don't mean I won't put in my two weeks later. Having a good time, baby, having a good time, baby. Okay, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to uh, the We're Having a Good Time podcast. My name is Dusty Slay, and I'm the host of the We're Having a Good Time podcast. And I'm in studio with my wife, co-host, and producer, Hannah Hogan. Hey, Dusty. I wonder how many producers tell their uh, host, uh, you just expect me to know what I'm doing here. (laughs) (laughs) Well... That's what happens when you shit where you eat. <laughs> okay. I don't know why you're coming in like that. Sorry, well, that's, that's an expression. Is it? Yeah. Hmm. Well, not an expression we use around here. Excuse me. Yeah. So, well, welcome. We're here. We're excited. Uh, we have um, um, uh, a lot of stuff to talk about. Um, we're going to talk about where I've been, where I'm going. We're going to talk about land that we're looking to buy. Uh, we're going to do some advice. I got a new segment that I'm looking to do, uh, a general advice, not just advice to comics, just a general advice for life because people are lost out here. Let me tell you that. And I've been lost before. I, I was lost for a long time. And so I'm going to try to just start giving some little tidbits and if you would want to be featured on the advice segment, even if you don't want your name on there, but if you want to ask something, write in to me. Uh, I prefer you email me. Some people will send it on uh, different messaging platforms, but I prefer an email because I can keep them all together that way. Um, but um, my email is dustyslaycomedy at gmail.com. Oh, also, there is something that I wanted to talk about. How about... Uh, reaching out to comedy clubs. I had someone ask me about that, and I just helped a friend with that, so it's fresh on my mind. Although my advice now on that may have changed because things are changing. Things are changing all the time. And also, we're going to finish selling pesticides. 2012 comes up. I may keep it going a little bit because I have another segment But 2012 is the end of the initial selling pesticides. It's very exciting. The year is 2012. But first, where we've been, where we've been, where we're going. Where they going? Where they been? Where they going? Where where they been? Where we're going? Where Where we've been? Okay, where have I been? This weekend, I went to the Comedy Connection in Providence, Rhode Island. Wow, northeast. Northeast, and it was a blast. I mean, it was a blast. 
Uh, I had to get on. I had to get on an airplane and wear a mask, and then I had to get out and go through an airport wearing a mask, and then I had to get on another plane wearing a mask, and then I had to get into an Uber wearing a mask, and then I went to uh, my hotel, and I was about decided that I didn't even want to do comedy anymore, and I got into my Uber wearing a mask, and my Uber driver goes, he's a young guy, he goes, "We think about this pandemic," and I was like, <laughs> "Jeez, dude," <laughs> I said, "I hate it," and then. We got to the club. Club was great. They took me over. They fed me some food. Uh, the owner of the club, Corey, great dude. Everybody was safe and socially distanced and wearing masks. In fact, the other two comics, both very funny, the other two comics on the show with me sat in the green room with me and wore masks. I mean, it's Mastonium out there. Is that that would be like my way of saying pandonium? Pa mm -hmm. Is that even a word? Pandemonium. Mastemonium out there. That's it. And Mastaria. Mastaria. Yeah, I mean, and, but I got to tell you, I got up there in the first five to ten minutes being back on stage. I had not done comedy in two months. The first five to ten minutes had me real nervous. Not real nervous, but pretty nervous. And then I got into it. And when I got off, I did straight up an hour. And when I got off that stage... I felt like I was on drugs. I mean, I felt good. My body felt good. My mind felt good. And then I had to get it together and go and do another show. And it was great. There were some people in the audience. I went right up. This lady interrupted my joke. And then I went into another joke, and she goes, is your hair real? I know I was in Rhode Island. I think she was from Kentucky. She was like, is your hair real? And then I was like, you know, I was trying to address her. I didn't, because I, to be honest with you, I don't really care. In my mind, these days, when I go up on stage, I'm like, I can do two kinds of shows. I can do the kind of show where the audience uh, just bees quiet and lets me tell my jokes, or I can do the kind of show where somebody keeps yelling at me from the crowd and I just talk to them. You know what I mean? Like, I, at this point, I've done so many shows, I don't really care. I could just talk to you. And, but someone from the club came over and uh, said something to her. And then she was moderately quiet for a minute, but then another lady said something to me from the audience. But her thing was, was very harmless and didn't interrupt my joke. And then that, so the other lady goes, why aren't you getting yelled at? Why aren't you getting yelled at? And then uh, I don't know that anyone said any else, anything else to her, but her table continued to talk to each other. But I went on about my sad. I was having a good time. And then... It was two older middle-aged couples there, and two of them got up and left. And then the other two, the second one was with the rowdy woman. They finally got up, and I started talking to them, like talking about them as if they weren't there. I was basically making fun of myself, but I was like, I was like, the, the slowness of this exit, because everybody could see them. It's a socially distanced club. We're not jam-packed in there, and... Uh, you could see them slowly leaving, and I was like, the slowness of this exit is killing me. It's <laughs> like I'm, I'm watching these people walk out on me in real time, and then they, you know, and they just keep, keep moving slow, and they won't acknowledge that I'm talking about them, and, I, and then I said, you know, I just hope they're not on motorcycles because then you'll hear it crank up as they drive away. And, um, and then the... Um, And then, uh, well, don't worry about it. 
And then I'm just telling Hannah not to worry about the camera. I don't know what's happening. We can't get the, I can't get the camera to stay on. I, I don't know what happens to it. I, I record for a little while. It shuts off. I don't know what happens. But so then the audience member, um, uh, she comes back in. They walk out, and then she comes back in and goes to the bar, and I feel like she's complaining about something. And so the owner goes outside with her, and I guess they talk to each other or whatever. And then he comes back in, and I say to him, because you can see the door, you can see the bar all from the stage. And I say to him, I say, I'm sorry about that. And then he lets out this noise like, Arr! he's also wearing a mask, so you can't see his real facial expression. And much like anyone, no one has facial expressions to me anymore. But that moment um, really brought us all together. It, it felt like it brought me and the audience together. And then the rest of that show was fantastic. And then Saturday was pretty uneventful, but just two great shows back-to-back. -back. A lot of fun. Uh, they even get my joke about it's 5 o'clock somewhere, even in Rhode Island. I was so glad to hear that you had a euphoric weekend doing comedy because uh, you were really kind of questioning your journey as a comedian and, and where this was going and what, like, you know, and even just your your motivation for comedy well i'm just saying i know that everybody these days wants to make everything political so anytime you have an opinion uh your opinion must be somehow tied to something political but i am so frustrated by this whole thing and then just everything being shut down all the time and everybody wearing masks and everybody not being near each other i'm just so frustrated by it that i'm like if this is how it's going to be from now on, maybe I do do something else, you know. Uh, but, you know, getting back out there, doing a little comedy, it, it feels great. I mean, it's really amazing to do comedy. But I'm so um, frustrated by a kind of a sheep mentality that's going on out there. And it's beyond frustrating because... I've, I've looked into this stuff quite a bit, and I feel like there's a lot of information out there that I don't think people are looking at or realizing, and they're just going right along in a very sheepish way, which I'm like, we got to be better about questioning things because otherwise people will just use it to control us, and we have to think for ourselves, and it's very frustrating. I mean, I'm... I'm seeing, I saw a post on Twitter the other day and it was like, you know, where people type a word and then a period and then a word and then a period as if they're making this hot point. Uh, and it said, mask, go over your noses. And then it was quote tweeted by someone that's like, why are we even having to say this anymore? And I'm like, well, probably because people are getting real sick of it. And uh, the, the over the nose thing actually doesn't make any sense. Um, it My favorite thing on Twitter is like, it's the same idea as periods in between words, but they'll do like the clapping emoji. Oh yeah. I didn't know you. There's so much hack on Twitter. Oh yeah. Like let this sink in. Right. Let that sink in for a minute. Okay, thanks. Right, and then if you have that opinion, if you have an opinion like that, then somehow that is tied to some political thing and it's like, I, it's not for me. It's uh, it's simply that I don't want to wear a mask. I'll be honest with you. I don't want to. I do it, but I don't want to. Mm -hmm. And 
it's not because deep down inside I have some sick desire to kill old people, you know, or because I want to get anyone sick. It's because I'm not sick <laughs> and, and I don't want to be treated like a sick person. Do you know what I mean? I do. Because that's what's happening, I feel like, is that uh, you're like, oh, you may be sick and you don't know it. And I'm like, I've always known when I'm sick. Well, the thing I noticed was, you know, when COVID finally started to sink in in America in March, it was all about social distancing. Social distancing was the thing, like social distance, social distance. And masks, at least in Tennessee, did not really become ubiquitous until I'd say May. Like, I mean, we didn't start to get our mask mandates until May. Um, I mean, some people were wearing them before then, but it was not, you know, signs on every door making you wear them. But I noticed that now that we have to wear masks, no one's social distancing. Right. And Yes, exactly. Like, the, yeah, there's the, the little stickers on the ground telling you to, but no one is, it's like everybody has this sort of, I'll say false security with masks, but you know, I work right. downtown on Broadway and it's like people right. wearing masks, but they're walking around. Yeah. I mean, totally. So, um, you know, and, and it just, yeah, I mean, it's just not, um, I don't know. I don't know what the deal is. I, it, I feel like almost like people like want this to be bigger. I feel like people want it so that they can look back in five to 10 years and go, Remember that pandemic? We lived through that pandemic, and I'm like, I'm 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 uh, dreaming about 2019. That's how bad it is for me. I'm like, never in my life have I really seriously reminisced old times and been like, it was better then. But if this is how we live, it's not better. 2020 will be a year that I remember as the year that finally I didn't feel like things were better than they were before. Aww, that's true though. It's true, though. It, I'm not, I don't mean that to be sad. I mean that it truly is mind-blowing to me how much people have accepted this. And I'm not even making political statements. I'm like, it's, it's killing me. It's true. I mean, and that's why I'm like doing a little comedy. Like we went to a restaurant today. This whole idea, the restaurant, you walk in to the restaurant, you have a mask on. Then you sit down at the table, you take the mask off. What, what are we accomplishing here? And then people come in from off the streets by themselves. They come in with a mask on. They sit down at the bar and take the mask off. I mean, like, what are we doing? What kind of weird-ass game are we playing here? Where we're like, mask on here, but mask off here, and then you, you can catch it if you're wearing it here. And then, hey, but we all know that it doesn't really protect you, but we're wearing it just in case. Stay six feet away unless, hey, unless you, uh, uh, unless you don't want to, and then make sure you got that mask on. And then if you don't have the mask on, I'm going to go on Twitter and go, wear your mask, people. Well, it's very performative, right? Like at the yeah. gym is the most hilarious. Yeah. Where you have to walk in wearing a mask, but then you're actually allowed to take it off to work out. Right. But when you're working out at my gym anyways, it's under these huge ceiling fans and everyone's sweating and breathing heavy and but, using the same machines. But not the case everywhere, though. And I don't want to disparage that. See, I like that. Because in uh, my friend told me that in Vegas, he has to wear the mask while he works out. Um, so I don't want to. But you see how faulty the logic is. Absolutely. But all that being said, I had a great time in Rhode Island. I loved it. I just hate the travel. I hate everything associated with the travel now. But I did love Rhode Island, what I got to see of it. Although I didn't really want to get out and about because 
I felt like it might be depressing to see the city in 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 that kind of way. And uh, so that's where I've been. And where am I going? Well, I'm not going anywhere for a few weeks. So. <laughs> <laughs> Dang you, COVID. Uh, yeah. So um, I just think, though, I really, I don't know. I just think Big that it's. Big props to Rhode Island for, all, for getting it going. Yeah. that The club owner there is very good, and he knows what he's doing, and he's really getting it going. And, and, and I I just wish there was, a you know, a little bit more pushback from people. Because I just feel like, I feel like governments are really taking advantage of this. And show seeing how much they can get away with us on it, and we're so divided, we're so hell bent on being Republican or Democrat that we're like missing the overarching point, which is that we, you know, we used to have freedom, and it was a pretty amazing thing, and uh, and I miss it. So we're looking to buy land. We're looking to get get you know we're looking to buy some land so we got a little getaway. And we were looking at this one land, and this uh, had a, um, uh, a for sale sign on it. And the for sale sign had a, uh, uh, what do you call it, a real estate agent's name on it. And, and this is what her name is, Elise Madewell. Her, name, her first name is A-L-E-A-S-E. Her second name, her, her last name is M-A-D-E. W-E-L-L. Elise made well. A real estate agent. A real estate agent. <laughs> as if she is going to make a lease and make it well. Yeah. She's going to draw up a lease and it's going to be drawn up well. My name is Elise made well and I'd like to get you into this apartment here. And we went to our agent and said, is this her real name? And he was like, Yeah. It is her real name because I looked her up the other day, and and there she is. That is her name, Elise Madewell. Well, I mean, that's the name she goes by, but how do we know she's just not trying to really be an ambitious real estate agent? It's the most amazing creative real estate agent name I've ever heard. Yeah, I mean, she's like, I'm going to go for a pun and try to stand out. I'll tell you another thing I tried to do. Uh, Weather's crazy, right? Weather is wild right now, Uh right? And I love a good conspiracy video, so... I started talking to people in the green room about we- about weather manipulation. Yeah. <sighs> Man, they shut down. I told you not to do things <laughs> like that, Dusty. <laughs> I've been telling you, don't be doing that. All I'm saying is <laughs> the thing that I think is so weird is that conversation is dead now. Conversation is dead. And that kills me because I love to talk about things. And some of the most interesting things are a bit conspiracy related. But it is is in all of our massive advancements in science and technology, is it out of the realm of possibility that they could manipulate the weather? I mean, think about this. When the weatherman comes on TV, he says, we got a storm front and it's leaving some country way across the ocean, and we can tell its trajectory and that it's most likely going to go up uh, under Florida into the Gulf of Mexico, and we know those waters are hotter. And when the condition like that happens, and the tornado hits it, and and the hurricane hits it, it's going to build up, making it a more devastating hurricane. Now, if they know all those things, why would they not know how to manipulate? Well, manufacture it. 
manufacture, manipulate. But I mean, I think manipulate as opposed to manufacture because if a storm's coming and they know the storm would be more severe if the water was hot, well, then you find a way to heat the water, right? They got some coals underneath that gulf. Who knows what they're doing, right? And I'm, again, I'm not saying they're doing it. But the thing that used to be fun amongst people was talking about these things, whether we believe them or not. And then you can build upon the, the, the theory, and then you talk about it, and you go, man, that's crazy. Uh, I wonder if they can do stuff like that. But now, you know, you'll always have some smart ass around that wants to pull up their phone and go bring up a peer reviewed <laughs> yeah. article fact check yeah actually this is peer reviewed with several scientists at the john hopkins harvard and princeton get your facts right this is what's the problem with this country gosh i gotta go take a xanax pass out for three weeks uh, i know and it's like it's so crazy it's like all i want to do is talk to people all I want to do is have normal conversations. That, well, maybe not normal, but conversations where we just talk and we use imagination and we go, this is wild. Huh? I, I love conspiracy theories. I am 100% open to them, as you know, because you are, um, well, you're the host of the podcast I'm on, but you're also my husband. And this is my theory about conspiracy theorists. And it doesn't, it doesn't apply to everybody who's into conspiracy theorists theories but I've always wondered first of all there's people that really like attack conspiracies and call anybody that believes in certain theory theories like crazy like people that are into flat earth like are crazy or QAnon they're crazy right and I'm not endorsing or, or speaking on what I think of those things right but I'm open to listening to everything okay my theory though is people that are more open to conspiracy theories generally speaking have experienced some sort of traumatic event or some sort of difficulty in their early years that broke apart their reality. Because like for me, you know, because I lost my mom, I realized things change in a second and what you think is reality and what's normal just gets broken apart immediately. So it's like for me, it's easy for me to jump to what if or that could be true or yeah, I mean, who knows what's going on? Because I've lived that. Whereas people well, totally. that come from like nuclear families or went, you know, through the standard, yeah. you know, flag posts of life, they're like, no, that doesn't, that's that would never happen because they don't even know how to contemplate an alternative existence. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. I mean, simply put that uh, when things aren't always going so well for you all the time, you believe that there might be an actual alternative going on right but when people are have perfect lives growing up they they go oh that, that like i was talking to uh i had someone someone on on an agency that i worked with one time we were at a comedy festival and she was talking to me about some netflix thing that she was watching about uh children about some kids disappearing and i said you know there's like hundreds of kids that go missing every year in national parks and she goes but that's like a conspiracy though right and I'm like, you just said it. Yeah, I'm like, you just brought up some kids disappearing documentary to me, and I'm I'm bringing up a thing. But it's like, people can't get get through th their minds that what they're what they're being told on the surface uh, could be a lie. Yeah. And 
I don't know. I love talking about it because I don't like being a sheep out here. And uh, you know what I mean? And I want to know. I want to ask things. I want to find stuff. And um, that's a lot of the way, you know, that that I've, I've even conducted my own comedy and my own way of life is that I don't want to do it a specific way just because I'm told to do it that way, because I'm told that's the right way. I want to look at things and analyze things and ask questions and find out, well, what's actually best for me and what am I actually looking for in comedy? Like when I started comedy, I never was actually going, man, I want to be real famous. Maybe there was a time. There was probably a time, probably right before I quit drinking at the end of 2011 when I thought I'd like to be famous. But when I actually went into taking comedy more seriously, my quest wasn't fame, and I now realize this. My quest was just to do comedy, just be a comic and just have fun doing it. So I wanted to find out what's the best way for me to do comedy uh, and, and while I'm getting better at comedy, be a comedian. And after the research that I did, I found that working the road is the best way. Now, if that's not, depending on what you want, it may be different for you. So I understand that. But I'm like, I'm like man, I could work the road and be a comic full time while wanting to become, you know, a comic. And I'm like, that's the way, because, you know, ultimately, I mean, you want to rise up in the ranks of comedy to make more money. But I just think that was the way to go. So I just think that with all things, when you're looking to pursue something, you know, asking yourself why you want to do this and then be honest with yourself and then um, look at how you're going to make it happen. Well, this kind of goes into the advice for the day, right? Yeah, but I just went right into it. I don't have a button for it. Oh, okay. So I just went right into it. Yeah. But I think that we just got, you know, we got to look at what you're wanting to do, and you don't have to do it the way that people tell you to do it just because they say it's the right way. I mean, there are people who have had success doing it my way. There are people who have set success doing it a completely different way, a completely different way, a completely different way. But what what's best for you? I mean, I love the path that I chose to take. I got to see mostly the entire country. I plan to see the whole country, but up until this point, I've seen most of the country, and I've seen I've seen a lot of the big cities, but I've also seen tiny towns that most people never will see because why would you? But I've driven through them. I've been all over the place, and it's uh, it's amazing. So all the while while trying to become a comic. Now, I think an important thing, I've said this before, but trying to figure out how to work both independent rooms, indie rooms, uh, hipster rooms, however you want to call them, and also work road clubs, um, you know, finding that balance to where you're not becoming too indie to where you can't ro- work the road or you're not becoming too road to where you can't do the indie clubs. Doing a nice balance, if you're working a lot, a lot of road gigs, Try to do indie clubs when you get a chance and make sure you're doing um, comedy festivals. And, you know, don't do hack jokes. Now, I don't, I think hack, the true definition of hack means that you're stealing something or you're doing a joke that everybody does. For me, hack is like not going for the obvious joke. You know, spend a little time with it. Try to, you know, try to go for the alternative joke. Right, Hannah? Yeah. 
How do you feel? I feel fine. Good. We were fired up at the beginning. Well, I, I just felt like I talked too much, and you seemed to want to, me to talk less in my long blurb. So I'm like, okay. Well, we're getting reel it in, girl. We, we were getting fired up. I, I don't, you know. Well, I have this thing that I do where I get fired up and say something, and then I'll probably repeat it right after I say it. Well, you and don't I'll say it twice, like of what I've just done now. You won't leave a lot of breaks for for people to jump in and throw stuff in. Well, because I'm fired up and I'm trying to say my whole you know, premise. I know. But usually my premises are dang two paragraphs. And your premise will go into a new premise without, without, you know, you're like, you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. But you make great points. Well, I think so too, but I really have been working on brevity for about 35 years and it still eludes me. I was going to say, how's that going? <laughs> Yeah, it's not going good. But we've had a good time today. We've been out looking yeah. at land, and uh, we've had a good time. Yeah, it's interesting. We went and did a little bit of the conspiracy stuff. Yeah, I like that. I mean, you know what I'm, I mean? I'm just like, it just like, it, it's so, like, everything is so framed now in a sense where if you believe this, you must support this. Or if you support this, then you must support this. And it's like, things are so framed in such a way that it's like, it's almost impossible to say anything. But I, I think that. Uh, there's no doubt there's some there's some fishy stuff going on. And it's, there's no, fr I mean, there's, it's, we're being trained to not have freedom of thought. I mean, imagine, you know, they told Copernicus, you idiot, you think the earth revolves around the sun, you know, and they probably did say that to him. But the whole reason he was able to come up with that was because he had an imagination and he inquired and he asked questions yeah, I mean, and, and I mean, it's like you can't even you can't even probe something like all these different facts or science or sacred cows. Yeah, and and the media oftentimes has the nerve to call something a conspiracy theory, and I'm like, oh please, the media, all of them, for a long time, for a long time, have just been they just say whatever. You know what I mean? For a long time, it's been like that. I hate the media. It's just like it's just like. It's, it's like they're just manipulating us. They're just yeah. telling us things, and then they go, uh, this debunked conspiracy theory, and it's like, I'm, well, who debunked it? You debunked it? It's about you. You can't debunk a conspiracy that's about you. The media has been just scaring me my whole life. Like I remember distinctly one of my earliest school memories is I was on probably grade two or three, and my teacher told us about global warming. And I was, I lifted my hand after she explained it. And I was like, can I go to the bathroom? And I went to the bathroom and I just sat on the toilet and I was like, oh my God, the earth is going <laughs> to burn. The earth is heating up and we're all going to die. It's like, I was so freaked out. I was like, this is crazy, man. Yeah. And I was on the global warming tip well, from that point onwards. Well, it was getting hot, and then oh. suddenly it was just climate change, and it was like oh. the weather just gets extreme, and then it's like, it's hot, it's cold, things are melting, they're freezing over. And then it's like, if you dare ask a question, they, they yell at you, and they call you names, and they go, though climate is not the weather. And I'm just like, I don't, I don't understand. I'm just asking questions you're denying and i'm like <laughs> I, i'm not and i just i'm not denying i don't know enough about any of it to deny it but i mean can i ask a question 
You know? Yeah. Can you tell me? Oh, it's so complicated. I don't have the time to tell you. Neil deGrasse Tyson comes in. He'll let you know. <laughs> yeah, he'll come on to a comedy show and drop a mic. It's amazing that the expert, the resident expert for science, is also this charismatic black man <laughs> right, right. who everybody loves. Who would have thought in that one package we, he could have it all? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I still, I, I, I basically blame my current issue of anxiety on my grade two revelation of global warming well let's talk about the end of the spectracide journey i just played a couple of tracks that you didn't hear you yeah didn't i know headphones okay this is the year's 2012 january 2012, I rang in the new year with the girl Erica that I had been hanging out with. We rang in New Year's together. And then that ended much the way Hannah predicted because it wasn't the same. After the time that we took off, I wasn't the same. She wasn't the same. I was the worst. Uh, my alcoholism was the worst that it ever got around that point. I was pretty overweight. Uh, it basically ended, and uh, I, I, it was my fault. I, I will say that. I, 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 but, you know, the first time it was her fault. The second time it was my fault. And to be honest, it felt good. It didn't bring me any lasting happiness, but in the moment, it, I felt pretty good that I actually got to break up, kind of break it off with the girl that broke it off with me. It felt pretty good. But, yeah. but by mid-January, I performed at the poorhouse in charleston it was off james island and that was part of a winner's showcase i had won the contest in late 2011 so this contest was part you know of the charleston comedy festival and we did our showcase so devin gollinge who was in he, he lives in atlanta now he's in myrtle beach at the time but he had won third place so he got you know 15 minutes and or maybe 10 minutes and then roz uh out of jacksonville she got 15 minutes and then I got 20 to 25 as the first place winner and I don't to be honest I don't think Delvin Devin or Roz liked me at the time and I don't think that they thought I deserved to win and did you yell at them when you were drunk no oh they just liked you for other disliked you for other well, reasons. because I won there's oh, not right. really any prize money for oh, second. I'm well aware of the pettiness of stand-up comedians yeah there's not really I and I wasn't to be honest, at the time, I wasn't really aware of that. And I know that the the lady, she wrote a bunch of stuff about me on um, Facebook. Not not particularly personal things about me, but we laughed about it a while because she was talking about how, she, basically how she was going to win this contest. And then I beat her and she put, she went on there and she goes, oh, I lost to some local boy, you know. And it was just like, all right, lady, I mean, I beat you by two votes. I get it. I think it's a bummer that if you win, you get a thousand bucks. If you lose, you get nothing. But that's how it goes. And in terms of intensity, the glory of winning does not compare to the sorrow of losing. That's true. Losing feels so much worse than winning. Well, that's true. But I, I went up and I won them over, though, on this night. I believe that I won them over because um, I had a good set. I had. Um, much better sets than the two of them had. And after them, I think I won their respect. And I actually ended up being friends with Devin. I never saw Roz again, but I, I ended up being friends with Devin. 
But I don't have anything bad things to say about them. And I, as I said on the last podcast, Roz was really funny. I mean, she was funny. But I don't apologize for winning. And uh, I wanted to win. But there was this girl that I was interested in, and I had invited her to this show. And she didn't come. You and your interests in women, huh? Listen, that's what this is about. So don't <laughs> don't don't interrupt to make this some kind of marriage debate here. All right. All right. So yeah. I mean, so um, that's what this journey is about. You joined. Uh, you came back to the podcast mid pesticide journey. I was invited back to the podcast, right? But you came back mid pesticide journey. Ah, so, continue. Uh, and she had stood me up, mm. and I was sad. And um, so this is all still January of 2012. So I, I was pretty sad. And my friend, John Brennan, he was living in New York City at the time, and he was visiting Charleston. And he wanted a ride back to New York. And he said, you know, and he, he was always pushing for me to move to New York City. And he knew that I wanted to move to L.A. He knew that was my plan, but he thought, hey, why don't you, you drive me back to New York. I'll pay for your gas. You drive me back to New York. You can stay at my house for a few days. Uh, our friend Tim Heckle was living there. It's like you can hang with Tim, do some open mics, and get a feel and see if maybe New York is not where you want to move instead. So I said, okay, deal. So we drove up there, and John was living in Brooklyn, and I stayed with him. And I think uh, Tim was living in Brooklyn too, but it's huge. They weren't living anywhere near each other. So I went out with Tim, and I think this was my first time ever doing any open mics in New York City. It was in January 2012. I did a couple. And some of the people that I met, I'm still actually friends with. Um, and, you know, I remember I was there maybe three or four nights. And every night I walked back to John's apartment drunk. And on the way to his house, there was a White Castle. And every night I stopped in the White Castle. I got like six burgers and fries they're small burgers i got like six burgers and fries and ate them before bed every night when i was at john's place usa yeah so on thursday i got in the car i drove back i drove back to uh charleston and i drove all the way smoking cigarettes I uh, went through a range of emotions on the way back. I mean, I was praying. I, I, don't, I don't think I was crying. I wasn't really much of a crier, but I had a range of emotions that I went through, and I smoked a million cigarettes, and I made it back, and I went to Yo Burrito where my trivia was at. I had my friend Derek Humphrey hosting my trivia for me. So I met up with Derek. We went out and got wasted that night, Thursday night. And then Friday... We went out again and got wasted. And then Saturday, I had a date. Now, on the night that <laughs> I got stood up at the, uh, at, the, at the contest or whatever, I met another girl at that contest. So we had agreed to go out. So we went out on Saturday. Now, I did not feel like this date, not because I didn't like the girl, but because I felt terrible. I mean, I was hungover. I had been smoking too much, but I was like, I'm going to do it because I already said I'm going to do it. So we went out. We went to a place called Pearls. We had some oysters. We had some beers. And then we went to Big John's Tavern. And then after that, I walked her to her car. I felt like the date went pretty well. I stopped in at Yo Burrito, had a couple of beers, uh, went back to my house. And the next day, January 28th, I quit drinking and I never drank again. To this day. Wow. So was it premeditated? 
Oh, no. You just woke up the morning. You said, I am done. I felt so bad. And I had an open mic that night to do with the tin roof. And my roommate at the time, uh, me and her, we used to smoke cigarettes in the hallway of the apartment complex. Right on. So we stepped out into the hallway to have a cigarette. And I took like two puffs off of it. And I didn't have the lung capacity to even take a drag off the cigarette so I just threw the cigarette down I was like I can't do it and I and I was still fiending for nicotine though so I went and bought some dip so I went to the tin roof I I did the open mic uh the girl that I'd gone on a date with was there I think we had agreed to go there we only got a little bit and I was just like I gotta get out of here and then uh January uh, let's see, that would have been, so the 29th, the next day I bought this book. I've talked about it before, a book that I read. I won't say what the book is. I'll probably never share what that book is because if I do, it will only diminish the story. But I read a religious based book. I had a real breakdown, uh, and I decided that I wasn't going to drink. Now, I don't know exactly. Some of the things are, are, have faded. I like to tell people that I decided that I was going to take a break. and But I think in that moment I had decided to not drink again. And I dipped for about two or three days after that. And then the dip started to weigh on me, and I, and I didn't feel good dipping. So I, I dumped the dip. I got rid of the dip. And um, I, um, I never dipped again. Now I'm into pretty heavy into nicotine, and I have been for uh, the last six years or so. But uh, with cigars and stuff, and I take breaks. I'll take some pretty massive breaks sometimes, but and that it's not as serious for me as cigarettes were. But I, I definitely gave those up. In January thirty first, I I look through some notes and I found some things. Well, I've over the years I've written down things. I never kept an in, an intense journal really, but I I'll write down things from time to time. And I wrote that on January thirty first, I had decided to not pursue comedy as a career. And it was considering becoming a minister. Mm. I wrote that down, January 31st. Wow. And I remember that. I remember walking around with that. I remember thinking about it. I remember, I remember meeting with Stu Barber shortly after quitting drinking. Stu coming all the way back from the guy I used to work with. I had, a, I had shaved my beard. I was very overweight. Uh, and I met with Stu in a restaurant in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, and Stu looked at me. We were hanging out for a bit. This always makes Stu sound mean, but I just want people to understand that this is who Stu was, and I imagine still is, and it helped me. But he looked at me, and he said, you look terrible. He said, you're fat, you, you look unhealthy, you look bad. He said, I've, I've known you for a long time. I've never seen you look like this. Wow. And I told him that I had quit drinking. And he told me, he said, well, that's, and I think he was just looking out for me. But he was like, he said, I think that's too extreme. He said, You've, you, you're setting yourself up for failure. He's like, you probably just need to cut back. And he's like, you need to lose weight. And he, I asked him, you know, because he was a big workout guy. So I asked him for some help on a diet plan. So he helped me figure out a diet plan, and I went super extreme with the way I was eating. And um, and I, I got home that day, and I got on it. I got on it. And, 
And I was still working Spectre side. So keep that in mind. All of this is going down in my personal life, and I'm still working the day job. Every day I'm going in, every day I'm doing it. But so a month after quitting drinking, now a lot of me wanting to move to LA, I think was wanting to quit Spectre side. I was so tired of working there that the idea that I would move to LA and pursue comedy had, uh, it felt good to me. It felt like, oh man, I could, you know, I could uh, uh, be out of this job. You know, I could be out of here and I could be free. I could be, and so that's what it was. And and then when I decided to quit drinking and not to pursue comedy, it almost put me in a bit of a more, uh, I don't want to say depressed, but more of a sad place because I was like, oh man, now I don't know what to do. Like, I, I can't quit this job. And, my, and the thing about it was, I had wrecked the car so many times that my car insurance had gotten really expensive. It had gotten up to one one month. It had gotten up to like five hundred bucks a month, and I I switched companies. I got it down, but it was still three hundred a month. My car payment was like two fifty, so that alone was five fifty a month I was dealing with. And I wanted to quit the job, but I was like, I can't quit the job because I have this car, and I can't pay for this car without this job. I might have been able to make it work, but it would have been terrible. So. On February 27, a month, and I know these dates because I wrote these down. A month after I quit drinking, I figured it out. It hit me. And I decided that, well, this is the, all right, so maybe it was a little, let's say the 25th. I decided that I could quit the job if I sold the car. That's the only way I could do it. I could quit the job and sell the car. I lived downtown. Theater 99 was downtown. My open mic that I hosted was downtown. Everything that I did was downtown, right? And I was continuing to host the open mic even though I decided not to pursue comedy because I already had it going. So I was like, well, I'll just keep doing this for a while. And on February 27th, I turned in my two-week notice at, at, at Spectreside. How'd Febru that feel? February 12th. February 27th, 2012. That is the whole reason that I wrote the two weeks notice joke that I have was because it was the greatest time of my life. Mm -hmm. I had 32 stores. I had put in a two week notice. I probably had over a hundred bosses because each manager at each level at each store was my boss. And I had 32 stores. And then I had my own bosses with Spectreside. It felt amazing. I put in a two-week notice. I woke up early, 6 a.m. or so, sent in the two-week notice, went to work around 8 or 9 when my boss probably crawled out of bed. I had a new boss. Rob's, Rob was gone. The, the boss that I liked, he had got moved to a new position. I had a new boss named Mike, and I could already tell Mike was going to be like Stan. So I was like, I got to get out of here. So Mike called me, and he sat on the phone with me for about an hour trying to get me to stay. And I wouldn't do it. I was like, I can't do it. I sold my car two days before, uh, two days before the two-week notice was up. So I rented a car for two days just so I could finish the two-week notice. I taught classes. I was doing things. I was teaching store employees about Spectricide. I had one guy try to challenge me on one of the products. And I just, I kept trying to answer his questions. And he just kept going back and forth. And I go, you know what, man? I'm about to quit this job. I don't really care. And he goes, oh, that's how it is, huh? And I said, yeah, it is. And then another boss, this, was, this guy was a boss at the James Allen Lowe's. And um, he, um, I had had a couple of run-ins with him, and uh, we ended up being friends. 
But uh, I think I told a story about me and Erica in a car, and this guy walked by in the parking lot, and it felt pretty good. Um, and um, I think I missed that episode. You might have missed that one. And then, but this was this guy again. So when I would go in the store, what we would do is we would set up displays on the pesticide aisle. We would have displays all down that aisle, and the the store the the corporate office of these stores has gotten really involved, and they wanted to make sure that you know each company was represented each pesticide company was represented and that particular month my plan was to have three displays on the aisle and i walk into the store and the scots guys had moved all of my displays off the aisle i had no displays on the aisle at all i was supposed to have three of six and i had none so i moved every single display off that aisle and i moved all six of my displays on the aisle i filled it up the manager came in Started yelling at me. I told him what I was doing. I told him why I was doing it. And he said this to me. He goes, the conversation is finished. And I said, oh, well, I'm about to quit. So you can take all these displays and throw them in the trash if you want, because I don't care. I'm about to quit. And the guy's whole attitude changed. He was like, oh, you're quitting? Where are you going? And then we were friends from then on out. I took his power away. Yeah. And it felt amazing. Yeah. Uh, so March 23rd, do you have something to say? I do want to comment on Stu. Okay. I love Stu. I love his mentor relationship with you. And I also think that it really speaks to the power of speaking the truth in love. Because while I'm sure that wasn't great to hear, you look awful in him telling you how aesthetically gross you look i was very mad at Stu that day yeah but it is exactly what you needed to hear and i think it's such a good reminder like when you care about someone or if you if someone's asking you your honest opinion give it to them you think someone's unwell tell them if they need help tell them you know because you think it's easier to not hurt their feelings because you you might hurt their feelings but sometimes it just takes people a few days to kind of like let it sink in and then they come around and it's these life-changing things. Absolutely. 100%. Okay, proceed. By March 23rd, I was done with Spectreside. Now, I told you that I had rented a car. So what I had to do was I had to drop off that rental car at a spot downtown. And then... I had already, now I want to say this, I had already visited Hyman's. Now, Hyman's was a job I worked at prior to Spectreside and while I was working Spectreside a little bit too. And I had already gone back to Spectreside and I asked them, could I have my job back? And they said, yes. So I went ahead and got myself put on the schedule. So, and I, I was going to work three shifts, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, 10 to four, every, those three days. That was it. Three days a week. And then I had two trivias that I was hosting a week and then one open mic. That's how I made my income for two years. And it was amazing. So I dropped off this rental car downtown, turned it in. Now I sold my car and I had to pay like $2,000 because I owed so much money on the car that what I, I got, I couldn't sell it for enough to pay it off. So I sold it, and then I had to pay 2000 of my own dollars to get rid of the car. Wow. Best thing I ever did. Mm -hmm. And then I sold it to a girl. We became friends. Um, and then, so I dropped off this rental car downtown on a Friday after work. 
my last day ever going into Spectreside. I had a car downtown with no parking spot. I got many, many boots on my car. I got towed a bunch. I was getting tickets all the time. It was always a stress having to figure out where to park the car. But on this day, that worry of where to park the car was gone. I no longer had to go to Spectreside. And I was sober. And I felt amazing. I had already bought a bike. I bought myself a bike somewhere in that two-week notice so that I could get myself uh, one mode of transportation. I still own that bike. It's hanging in our garage right now. But it was amazing. And, and, and this is why. I used to have this joke uh, where I would say, and I might try to figure out a way to add the joke to the podcast, but I would talk about... I went, I went on a camping trip one time with some people from the church I was going to, and the question came up. We were talking, and they said, you know, the age-old question of what would you do for a million dollars came up, and uh, they asked, would you eat a piece of poop the size of a spun-sized Snickers bar for a million dollars? And I said, yes, right? And at the time, I meant it, but now I wouldn't. Because I don't need a million dollars. I feel fine. But at that time, that meant to me, eating that piece of poop the size of a fun-sized Snickers bar would have meant freedom from a job that I hated, freedom from debt I had incurred on a car. The chains of life. Yeah. But I I don't, I mean, I could still use a million dollars, I'll be honest with you. But I don't need it because I do feel free in, in, in my life. I went, I went camping uh, not too long ago with a church group. Uh, it was exciting. And uh, we were around the campfire one night, and that age-old question of what would you do for a million dollars came up. And that question made me really nervous because I'm a really honest person. And there's not a lot I wouldn't do for a million dollars. And like I said, we were on a church trip. So I was relieved when they asked me, would I eat a piece of poop size of a fun-size Snickers bar? Because I know for a million dollars, I would eat a king-size dookie. You know what I mean? So that was, um, that was March 13th. I said March 23rd. I'm sorry. It's March 13th. It's important to realize that it's March 13th and not March 23rd. March 15th, I took Saturday, Sunday off. March 15th, I was working at Hyman's. I only took two days off, and I was back at Hyman's. And I walked downtown Charleston, 9 a.m., Starbucks coffee in my hand, looking at the city, being like, wow, what a beautiful city and what a beautiful life I've begun as a sober person. And I, I began over the next couple of weeks I was riding my bike everywhere I was seeing the city in a whole new light I was seeing things that I had never really seen before downtown and I had lived in Charleston for at that point seven or eight years and I'd never seen these things before and I had really decided that I wasn't going to do comedy you know I was still messing around with it a bit but I was like I don't know if that's what I want to do anymore I have a new position on life And April 1st, my friend Evan Burke 
had a contest called Parade of Fools. It was a contest, and it was like, there's a picture of it out there somewhere. Maybe I can post that uh, on Instagram. But it was, I think it was uh, Vince Fabra, Bill Davis, Dave Corley, Stan Shelby, me, and Evan. I think that's it. And we were competing. It was a three-part contest, but all in one night for like 500 bucks. And I had already told Evan that I would do it. That's the only reason I did it. I didn't want to do it, but I had told him long before that I would do it. So I was like, all right, I'll do it. And I won. And I, from that win, I decided to pursue comedy. Well, it's like we said in other podcasts, you need wins to keep you going. And sometimes wins can, you know, change your, your perspective. I felt a lot like I just did in Rhode Island on that, on that time. Because I was like, it gave me a feeling that I was like, oh, I do like this. Mm-hmm. I do enjoy this. Yeah. And you're good at it. And then, so I won the contest in 2011 and by the, and I won it by two votes. And by the end of 2011, or end of 2012, I re-entered the Charleston Stand-Up Comedy Competition, and I won by, like, 50 votes. Wow. And I was voted best, uh, no, uh, by uh, 2013, I was voted best local comic in Charleston, so... No, I guess that would have been the year 2012. They pres- I don't know how they worked, but either way, I won Best Local Comic, and, and I won the com- comedy competition, I think, in the same year. And my life turned around, and it felt great. And, and then by the end of 2013, you would meet your future wife. Yeah, but let's not get there yet. Let's not go too far yeah, ahead. that's a dumb story. Yeah, let's not go too far ahead. And uh, because, you know, who knows? I mean, we got we got to have stuff to talk about next week, too. Yes, sir. So I love this story of you getting sober and your new lease on life. Your new Alice made well on life. Boom. <laughs> well, it is. Um, it, it was it's truly amazing because. Um, yeah, I mean, I just I felt better. I know I can I can feel your joy and freedom when you tell that story. Like, it, I put myself in your shoes, and I'm just like, I get what that is. Well, I can't explain um, how it made me feel. And also, you know, I, I, I'll say this. Like, deciding not to pursue comedy allowed me the freedom to pursue comedy without being thirsty, yeah. without being... Oh, I need this. I need this. I need this. I decided that I didn't need to do comedy. And then I chose to do comedy. And you could just have fun. And I just had fun for years. Oh, well, for the next two years, from 2012 to 2014, I would uh, do comedy without any real, um, I don't know, without any real thought to making much money. I made a little money on my open mic that I hosted. I would... I would host, you know, the Big Gun open mic throughout that. In 2012, the Big Gun open mic really took off in a real special way. It became, in my opinion, now this is my open mic, so uh, it's fair to say that I'm biased. 
uh, and other people would argue, but in my opinion, it was the best open mic we ever had in Charleston. Um, the big gun, the big gun show, uh, with my friend T Mike, Tom that I referenced, he used to work for me at Spectreside at one point. I referenced him. He would DJ the open mic and I would host it. And, and it was the best open mic in town without question. There is now the 10 roof was a really fun open mic, but it was monthly. Mine was weekly and we had a hot crowd. We had tons of comics coming there for our small scene in Charleston. We had like 30 comics and we had every once in a while we had traveling comics to come through i remember we had jordan rock chris rock's younger brother come through one time we had uh richie holiday uh who you know richie holiday he's really funny to me but i thought man when richie would come through he was like a a road comic and i thought man this is a big deal (laughs) i would get so excited when richie would be there and yeah it was just a real amazing time and and I, and I was done with Spectreside. There is one more chapter with Spectreside, but I will say I despised the company at that time, and I despised Lowe's and Home Depot. I never wanted to walk. I, I, did, I don't think I walked into a Lowe's or a Home Depot for about a year. And then after, I, would, I refused to go in. And then after I finally went in, I found a lot of peace in walking down the pesticide aisle knowing that I didn't have to do anything on that aisle. I mean, for eight years, eight, yeah, eight years, I went into a Lowe's and went onto the pesticide aisle and straightened it up, dusted off the products, brought boxes down from the overhead, filled the shelf, built displays. Probably developed a face rash. Probably developed, and and, and when I no longer had to touch those things, it brought me so much joy. And that's it. That's our podcast for today. What would you like to add, Hannah? Absolutely nothing. All right. Well, that's it. Thank you guys for tuning in. Um, send in some questions that you have. If you have some advice that you want me to give. I like giving advice. I am not in any shape, way, or form a professional at giving advice, but... But we, he's an Enneagram One, so he loves telling people what to do, how to live from the heart. He absolutely loves it. He'll he'll walk into your apartment and rearrange it just so that you can feel more comfortable. This is who he is. Yeah, I mean, I like to try to help people feel better about their lives, so I'd be happy to try to answer questions for people. Yeah, life questions. It doesn't have to be comedy questions like... You know, how do I know if my boyfriend is going to marry me or, uh, you know, what should I do? Should I go to college or should I take a year off? Or, you know, how do I decide the right church to go to? Any kind of just life questions, mundane or, or broad, bring it to us. All right. Thank you very much. We're having a good time.